What happens when you get a group of black educators together to have a conversation about slavery? Well, I am a black educator. I'm also a black woman and I got three of my black educator friends together and that's exactly what we did. We engaged in a riveting discussion about slavery and how it continues to impact us in today's world. So sit back and listen. You can also catch this particular um, episode on YouTube. All you have to do is go to YouTube and type in Chandra Kamaria and the chat up and the video of this actual conversation is there for you to watch as well. Here we go. Now we're up and ready. Okay, so this is a conversation that I think we should have, and it's interesting, it's surreal how this whole conversation is taking place during um, such a time as what has happened over the past few days with Ahmaud Arbery. And so what I want to do first is to start off with how did you all begin, or how did you all start studying slavery without it being something that's required to do in school? I'll start with whoever want to go first. Uh, my parents, um, definitely the first name that I spoke was Thomas Leon Gaines Sr., mm-hmm. father. And uh, I, I joke often amongst my circle that my black rage is real. And it's because of Thomas Leon Gaines Sr. Mm-hmm. And, and I just remember, you know, sitting down as a family and watching Eyes on the Prize and just any other, you know, PBS special that would come on, our house was filled with books. So we couldn't help but to learn about our history. And we learned about our history in a very contextual way um, in terms of our uh, indigenous roots um, here in the Americas, um, because that's an aspect that often becomes a joke. You know, black people saying, well, you, you got, you, oh, you said you got Indian in your family. Well, we actually do because our ancestors were runaway slaves that were taken in by the Creek Indians on my father's side of the family. Um, so even when you think about Gainesville, Florida, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. my father's family uh, uh, and just how the Creek chi- tribe was a part of that particular area of Florida and went to South Alabama and parts of Mississippi. And so Um, The Creek Indian side is definitely very evident on my father's side of the family. My mother is from Franklin County, Mississippi. She was actually from a village. So most people talk about, oh, I'm from a small town. My mama was from a village that is not even on the map anymore. It's called Quentin, Mississippi. And there was a lot of intermingling in terms of the uh, Black folks that were over there, as well as the indigenous people that were already inhabiting that land at that particular time. Um, and so just really understanding our roots from that context and my mother being the family historian on her side of the family and just kind of tracing her side of the family all the way back to Robert E. Lee's plantation mm. and her great, great, maybe great, I think it's great, great grandmother, mm-hmm. um, one of his slaves and also bore several of his children. So I am also an ancestor or excuse me, a, a descendant of Robert E. Lee's uh, plantation as well. So uh, there's no telling how many, you know, extended families he has because he soured children with his female slaves. And so just kind of understanding who we are um, and even just having an ancestor that was from the Cameroon 
Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, I, I struggle with understanding who I am in context if I really don't know my ethnic group. I really know is the country of origin, but what ethnic group do my people come from? And how do I kind of connect to that? Or do I kind of be okay with my colonized self, but with an African index and context to my um, So that's kind of where I come from and how I understand myself in the context of slavery. So I'm not sure if anybody else has similar experiences, but that's who I am. Okay, go ahead, Mike. How did you come to know or how did you come to study slavery as something that was outside of what would have been required in school? You know, what's interesting. Um, I have to give credit to the school I, I started out at um, in elementary. Um, those wonderful black ladies, uh, they took it a step further. I went to LaRose Elementary uh, back in the early, late 70s. And so um, they stepped beyond what was in the textbook and everything, and, and they made sure that we knew um, that we knew exactly our ancestry and uh, and the people that were important um, in that aspect. Now, my you know it extended from there with my father uh, when I would go and visit him, and we would talk about different things and stuff. And uh, he was probably the most influential as far as his wisdom and his knowledge that he uh, imparted on me before he left this plane of existence. Um, but, you know, as that journey began for me, um, I have to give credit to those educators at LaRose Elementary because at the time we were in a different state. Um, they were very influential on us of being, you know, making sure that we were proud of who we were and everything. Um, I didn't get it until I had to transfer to Evans Elementary back then when Evans Elementary was still predominantly white and we were being bused over there. I, I have a whole nother thing about integration. That's, that's a whole nother, nother topic. But I knew something was not right um, just based on the way we were treated mm. bust over there. And that that made me uh, question a lot of things um, that nobody would ever give answers for. So I kind of, from there, I just basically started learning and doing um, additional research on my own um, and everything. And and as time progressed, I began to learn more and more of the pieces. Um, I remember when, um, before uh, I got to Evans, I remember when my mom made sure that we um, took the time to watch Roots mm-hmm. thing. And, and, and she, in her own way, she didn't have that same, um, the, the same thing about um, the history. Um, I don't know what the details were with that because she, anytime the question came up about any African ancestry, she would try to shut it down. So that always led me into that, uh, that case of being that poison, uh, Eurocentric poison that has been fed to us a lot of times. And I never agreed with that, with her. Uh, even for my dad, mm. uh, talking with him, he was like, uh, he always stated to me that, and I still have to do the research on that, he always stated to me that he, as far as he knew, his, uh, his ancestors uh, came out of the, the Isles of Madagascar. Mm. Um, 
but I'm not sure about that. Um, I recently have had, um, in the last two years, I did do the uh, African ancestry, and um, and the results came back that I was that I'm descended of the Akon uh, clans. I mean, um, now, which branch of the clans are the Akon people? I'm not sure, but at least that gave me some direction and everything. So, I think this topic is something that needs to be said, addressed, and talked about on not just you know, randomly, but different aspects of it need to be touched on with those touch points. For me, it just came from, like Melanie, I grew up in Mississippi. So for me, it really just came through being around my elders, um, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, those were the names that I called um, initially. Um, because the way, I, I, one of the beautiful things that I take about the way that I grew up is that I grew up, um, connected to the former generation, but then a part of that present generation. So being able to see where I came from was very real for me by having relationships with my grandmama and my great-grandmother, them having a hand in raising me, the type of self-sufficiency that they had in growing their own food and making their own quilts and all of these different things that honestly I didn't know at the time it was just life for me but later on I realized was connected to this type of living that has been going on for hundreds of years or yeah for hundreds of years from slavery up until that present day with me um, I also love to read and still love to read trying to get back into reading with all this time that I have but I just remember when I was growing up I read everything I could about black folks because I saw when I went to school, how everything was so completely different. There, you know, I learned about everything white, so I understood everything about American history. They taught me all these different things, but where we fit into it, it was always slavery, and then Martin Luther King marched, and then everything was okay. And then I was going to the library and finding these books that said something completely different. So it started off with me acknowledging and recognizing just the lifestyle or just the the way that my elders were living at the time and how they pushed a lot of those ways and customs on to me and then what i saw in school and how there was a disconnect in what i was learning in school and what i was actually coming into of my own so it was just like a it was just like a thing where i was like something ain't working here something ain't clicking something ain't right let me find out what it is and I just ventured into wanting to know about uh, slavery as well as other black culture, black culture and other issues pertaining to black people. I started doing that on my own. So that's how I got here. Um, one of the things that we do wanna talk about, which is really cool about this particular conversation is that all of us are in education. So everybody on here works at a school. In particular, Z, um, she's on mute right now cause she's out and about but uh, she teaches uh, history for middle school. And then we have my Miss Gaines here, who is um, a literature ELA aficionado within the school system. So, I'm a, huh? slightly. No. <laughs> okay. It's interesting how we're all educators and we're all here having this conversation about slavery. And one of the main places where, um, slavery is misinterpreted is at school. As black educators, how do we work through that? What do we do? Uh, Can you all hear me? Oh, 
Go ahead. Uh, well, you know, one of the things that since I deal with on the high school level and I have one of the perfect classes right now, unless they decide to do something different next year, uh, which is a project based learning class, which means I have a lot of autonomy on our topics and our discussions. Um, uh, it's funny to me that at this day and time that many of our kids, uh, children, and they don't have uh, any knowledge of a lot of things um, of their past. You know, yes, the indigenous people here in this country were a major part, a major factor, and, but the funny thing was when I questioned several of these young people about did they know before the so-called Columbus, Magellan, and whoever else came here that Africans had already traveled here way before these so-called Europeans have laid claim to the land. And it was interesting that you went through all this time and nobody has ever shared that information with them. And, uh, and so I feel that I'm in, I'm in position um, dealing with high schoolers to kind of redirect them and uh, bring them up to speed on a lot of the history that they have missed about our people. Okay. Z? Melanie, um, I guess she had to go back on mute right quick. Do you have anything to add? Um, I think in my experiences um, in education, which expands, well, spans from K2 all the way to college, I never wanted to be heavy handed in my approach in teaching it because the history is so vast and it's also interconnected with so many things. I think a lot of times some educators that I've had to work with, they tend to teach it or approach it in isolation mm -hmm. and not necessarily in context. So give me an example of that. Excuse me? Give me an example of that. Teaching yeah, I was about to go into it. Okay. Um, so even when we're talking about how some of the uh, laws were structured in America and how that was really based on some of the economic, you know, questions that they were handling when they were talking about wanting to get rid of slavery and they just kind of reintroduced a whole new system of oppression upon Blacks and how a lot of what happens in our country is based on the laws that were constructed to protect whiteness, mm -hmm. uh, protect uh, white economies, the white status quo, white leadership structures, and all of that. Hell, even public education, <laughs> a huge degree. Mm -hmm. Even how we have private schools to this day to protect white children in education. Um, even when we're talking about, you know, considering what citizenship looks like. And the fact that, you know, a person of African descent was considered three-fifths of a human. And really trying to get students to understand that in terms of a, you know, a founding document for our nation. Um, so we could teach them all this kind of stuff and get them ready for a state test and all of that. But do we really understand the racial and economic implications that slavery had on every mm. and fabric of this country? So if we're going to teach about the founding documents, which is part of the curriculum in Shelby County Schools, I believe starting in middle school or maybe in ninth grade, uh, 
teach the whole damn thing. You know, just don't just don't teach the document. Like there were humans being brought over here. There were civilizations that were being dismantled. There was history that was being torn. And even and even the system of dehumanizing a person was something that was very systematic. Mm. And that continues in our prisons. Um, so you know, understanding from my perspective, when we're talking about literature is also really understanding the um, the psychotic nuances of whiteness in this country and how it extends itself from Europe and how it integrated themselves um, over here and how they literally had to feel and dehumanize and oppress in order to feel free and liberated from their own oppressors. So that's how what I approach What was the question? I'm sorry. It was as educators, um, it's interesting that this whole conversation is based on the conversation that we're having right now about slavery is among four people who are in education. And so it's pretty much like how as educators do we manage teaching slavery or helping students understand slavery when we know that the educational system is actually the first, it's really the first introduction that a lot of our kids have when it comes to understanding slavery. What do we do as black educators? I think the first thing we have to do is decolonize the curriculum. Um, the curriculum is not set up for black children. And I, I don't want to fall into that trap of saying children of color or all children. I'm focusing on black children. The curriculum is not set up for black children to see themselves. It's set up for them to be indoctrined uh, into whiteness and American imperialism. Um, you should see yourself as an American. We did all these things against these other nations, and it's a we, but it's still like, well, if it's a we, then where am I? What were my people doing? And the truth is, your people were being revolutionary and fighting against an institution that really sought out to wipe them out through violence, through uh, degradation, through all these different things. So I think first we must not well, first you must have a decolonized mind. Mm -hmm. Then you must decolonize the curriculum and make it so it is accessible to students. And one of my favorite quotes from um, Marva Collins is that education is painful. So there are gonna be some times where you're educating your students and they're going to take that as, well, if you're saying this, how come my other teachers have not ever said these things? Maybe you lying. Mm -hmm. Or they'll come and say, uh, and speak to their parents about it and then their parents may not know about it or their parents may um, have some resistance to, it, resistance to it as well. So kids go through this painful process of not necessarily everything that they thought they knew, but having an open enough mind and a safe space to get new information and to really see how does that fit into what I already think I know about the world and how can I use this new decolonized information to further push the for the cultural agenda. So I think um, as black educators, we have more of a responsibility to teach and inspire revolutionary students. Like that's to me the biggest charge. Um, and when I was in grad school, so my capstone was about the mental health of black teachers and all the things with it. And one thing that I found was a lot of teachers during the modern civil rights movement, they were teaching civil rights. So for them, it wasn't a thing of, you know, I'm just gonna 
strictly teach the curriculum, they almost lost their jobs <laughs> trying to inspire their students to do things that at their age they may have been afraid to do because it's too much risk. But even in that, that's a revolutionary act to tell these students these stories of great Africans and great African-Americans that will later inspire that generation to do stage sit-ins, to stage all these political protests. And I think our job as black educators is even more critical than our white counterparts. If um, I could add to that, I think it's also important to kind of speak to a point that you brought up is what is the appropriate age to teach our children about slavery? I definitely believe it has to happen age of nine, because that's when most of our children psychosocially start to adopt their inferiority complexes. Did you it's say before or after? Before nine? She said I, at nine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. What was the question? She was asking, did you say before nine? I said, you said by the age of nine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before nine. Yeah. Oh, before nine. Okay. I agree. And that's yeah, funny. I forgot what I was going to say. I was going to say something else. Sir. About this is the time to start teaching them about slavery because your initial question was, at what point in time do we actually introduce it? When do we start talking about it? And you said before the age of nine. Yeah, just go on. I just, <laughs> I got thrown off. Like, I just like, if I, if I stop, I can't remember. She was in a zone. I teach uh, that age group. Uh, I teach, I've taught fourth grade for two years, fifth grade for two years. And there is definitely some validity in really trying to get them to understand that uh, here is slavery, but that's not the whole of Black people. But here is where you need to get an understanding that your Blackness in this country is impacted by that. Like, one of the things I try to do is insert it as much as possible, um, because when you're teaching specifically through K, you know, K through 5, there's such an emphasis on making sure that you're teaching according to the standards, because it's foundational, and there's a lot of fundamental things that kids got to have before they move on to middle school and to high school. But I still make a point to try and squeeze it in as much as possible. So if we're studying anything historical throughout a, throughout a lesson, then I'm going to interject something there that's going to help them understand what black people were doing at this particular time uh, while white people were doing this. And then open it up for them to ask their questions, <clears throat> give them some other things to help them learn um, that slavery was real, um, helping them understand how it works within their lineage. And that's a hard job, but it, it works though. It, it has to be something that connects them to what they're doing right now. And yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and I, and I think to kind of add to that is making sure that we don't teach it in a way <clears throat> to make them believe that slavery is all that we kind of come from and the struggle is kind of birthed from that. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say it really has to be approached contextually because they have to understand how it integrated itself into so many different systems and who we, who we were before that and even understanding the entire world before that and how Europe kind of interjected itself into what was already happening, happening in world civilizations. And so I think to kind of, you know, bring it up, you know, after the age of nine, of course, we're going to get that resistance because now they're trying to understand what social groups do I belong to? Am I important? Do my parents love me? Why does this even matter? when it could really become so much a part of who they are, even though race is really a construct. 
And I think kind of assuming that teaching slavery is going to help all black children or assuming that every person of African descent was really for the liberation of all people of African descent. I mean, it was some of them telling on each other. There were some that were dismantling the system even during the civil rights movement. So we can't really kind of go into it thinking that, well, you know, every slave was for freedom and liberation. Well, slavery takes a toll on the mind and I never want to approach it thinking that every child is going to get it. Um, that's almost believing that every person is going to choose the red pill or the blue pill. You think everybody gonna take the right pill? So I think kind of approaching it realistically and not internalizing it as an educator and thinking like I'm failing this child because they won't get it. Maybe you've planted a seed that won't sprout for another 10 or 12, 20 years. And they'd be like, oh, that's what my teacher was trying to tell me. Oh, oh, oh now that I've read that book, now I can make these connections. They may not get it then. And some may not get it, but we cannot internalize it in a way in thinking that we weren't successful as an educator. And yeah, I think just teaching slavery for me, there's just, I don't know, there's just a line to toe with it. I don't know if anybody can kind of, you know, chime in on that, but I think to teach it is so problematic in so many ways because I don't want it to be a trauma bonding experience in the classroom. Mm. Well, happened, so um, but to kind of focus so much on on the brutality of it with young children, yeah. what would be the approach in the classroom that would yield the greatest amount of uh, what's the word uh, impact or influence or even just kind of dismantling white supremacy yeah i think in a lot of ways all of us are kind of colonized because we're still here mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> I think uh, to, um, but i think to kind of look at it is now that you have this knowledge what will you do to dismantle the system how will you chip away at this huge sheen that has been built for our oppression um i'm going to kind of add on the thing that one of the things that we have to put into context because I've had this to come across. Um, mm -hmm. B, I've, I've taught on different levels um, from kindergarten to where I am and now at high school. Um, the thing that the question that has come up several times has been, you know, when they come talk about slavery and then somebody will throw interject, well, you know, the Africans, they enslaved yeah. uh, too. So I had to uh, kind of break it down into uh, into pieces where they could understand the, the sense of, um, the basic sense of how slavery worked in, in Africa, you know, based on all the research I've done. Whereas, uh, yes, it was true that you had certain slave, certain tribes that were enslaved, um, other tribes, but it was due to the result of um, after the tribal wars. And the way, from my understanding, um, the way that was set up was that, you know, they, they killed off all the heads of, of those tribes, the chieftain and their servants and anybody that had power, they killed them off, but they took in the other people as their own. And eventually those people became a part of that tribe. Um, 
and that's something that's that's often missing um, in in when people talk about the slavery because they were like, you know, that's that justifiable thing. Just like when they, just like currently, I saw this foolishness today that somebody was trying to insinuate the black on black crime and dealing with the latest uh, this latest death. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we could talk about all of this stuff, but at the same time as um as black people in this country we got to get past we can't even address our issues on the black on black crime just like we can't address issues that regard to slavery because one i feel that white people just won't leave us alone and let us do our thing um but that that was one of the things that i had to put into context to get them to understand that the, the way the slave structure worked in Africa was not the same as what the Europeans did to our ancestors. Uh, but then how do you but how do you answer a child that will still say but it was still slavery? Yeah, and and the thing is but you may not be able to give them a direct answer. Cuz I I've received that question. I'm like, yeah, it is still slavery. It, 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 it is it is um introduce the subject of nuances to children um I'm, a, I'm in middle school and my kids understand from the very beginning people are not all good or all bad there are nuances so with decisions that people make and the way that things occur there are nuances i think for me i approach the well i teach seventh grade so i don't really teach um american history anymore but i start off from a very human rights level I don't start talking about civil rights because I believe human rights are not necessarily more important, but you are born as a human. We've seen civil rights, you have to fight for those. So if I approach the issue of slavery as a human right, rights issue, mm -hmm. then their minds become a little more like, huh, these are humans. When I say decolonize the curriculum, I don't refer to them as slaves. That A slave is not a person. That's mm -hmm. a type of um, condition. Mm -hmm. So we call them bondsmen or bondswomen because that the, even the term slave, that gives you a sense of, well, this is not a person. They are dehumanized. So mm -hmm. I can do what I want to with this slave. So I think changing language, changing um, the way that we approach it is really important because when you talk about human rights, like most kids know, okay, to vote is a civil right. But what are we talking about when we talk about human rights? Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of people, particularly children, they don't understand what human rights are. So when you talk about slavery, and sometimes it comes up, well, if I was white, I would have been a slave owner too. And it's like, whoa. So your issue is power. You believe you want to associate yourself with someone who is powerful. And I think historically, that's why most um, Black children and Black teachers have been afraid to talk about slavery, because it's almost a shame. It's like, well, dang, if I only see myself, like you were saying, uh, Chandra, um, if I've only seen images of myself in history books as a slave, then I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to talk about that. So I, I think it's important that we change language, that we change how we approach the uh, issue of talking about enslavement and slavery, and that we talk about um, human rights as well. Then to push rigor, and be culturally relevant, you talk about, okay, we've talked about human rights. 
But let's look at how this institution of slavery was so much more complicated than just being in physical bondage. Let's talk about emotional labor and abuse, mental labor and abuse. But like you were saying, I think, Miss Gaines, if we just approach- You can just like, call me Melanie. Oh, I'm sorry. We should be all on a first name basis. My name is Melanie. Okay, um, Melanie, if we just approach it by showing them clips from 12 Years a Slave, that's dramatic. Yeah. And it will also, but I also, I made my students read the narrative before we went on the field trip. You have to. Yeah, I think the visuals that Hollywood tends to use when they want to recreate a slave film just doesn't bring the voice, the human being that, yeah, I mean, it was purely illegal, you know. And it's dehumanizing. Like, mm. if I, you know, if that's all I see, the images, if that's all I ever see, then I would... And I don't know about you all, but my middle schoolers will say things like, they were so weak, they were crazy, I would have done this, this, and this, because they've only ever saw it as a physical abuse. They've not seen it as an educational abuse. Like, if you're going to run, where are you going to go? So, and Like, you don't even know where you are. Let me interject this piece right here. I think that there is a particular comfort that comes, that uh, there's a kind of systematic white comfort that comes in just showing the traumatic images of slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's why we can see a plethora of these kinds of films and these kinds of narratives, because even in today's literature, a lot of modern classics are still exploring um, slavery, but they're still doing it from a context that is comfortable for the white imagination. Yeah. So um, we have to make sure that as Black people, Black educators, we are focusing on all of the aspects because what is it? This is 2020. Last year marked, what, 400 years. So we're looking at the fact that we've been, that our people were enslaved longer than we've been free. So we've only, you know, it was 246 years of chattel slavery. So we're looking at about 150 some years since 1865 or whatever, if you want to start with the emancipation. So we- 155. 155. So we have to stop and think about, um, the the multi the, the multifaceted ways that that this legacy still impacts us every day and not allow I agree with Z when she said we have to change the languaging but we also have to change the imaging of it and also to go past the brutality. Well, mm -hmm. I think that the majority of us as Black Americans, not so much as children, but as Black Americans, are very clear about the brutality of it because we've seen Roots and Twelve Years a Slave in Django and everything else that they have put out there in front of us. But how do we get, how do we get African-Americans in this country to really try and keep in mind, because what I've seen a lot of is how black people want to address the issues that are happening to us as a people without connecting it back to that context. Mm -hmm. without connecting it back to that legacy of slavery. And so that's why this conversation about how to really do this as black educators in schools is why this is important at this point in time, because if we can figure out a way to teach our children within these school systems how to get them started with really trying to manage and understand the complexities of slavery, then we can build up a, a generation of children that will become adults that will still be able to push us towards um, this kind of liberation that we so need right now. And I don't know that we can really flesh everything out about slavery within the school systems as it, within the schools as the system is structured right now. So 
that leaves me to think about is there some kind of way that we can expansively teach it outside of the classroom and within the community i agree and i agree uh, um i will say the other thing is to to add on to um with with melanie and is it Z zara Zier. you call me z z um had had emphasized in regards to that we also have to come with that clarity uh, a lot of them, a lot of the, our young people are not aware of before the chattel slavery, you had the indentured servant. And a lot of our people were indentured servants um, before whatever that date in 16, late 1600s, mm -hmm. where they, you know, did whatever they, because they had a debt. And they, That's Virginia. And, um, and they earned they earned their rights to freedom. The unfortunate part about that, um, and 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 this is something that we have to really address, because it's you know a lot of times I realize with as black folks, we we try to steer away from the bitter pill, and that bitter pill is something that we all need to take a dose of, because even though some of those those ancestors may have been you know indentured indentured servants. And they earned their freedom, but they turned around and ended up became became a lot of cases of slave captures, and you know that within itself, a lot of folks try to avoid that. They try to avoid that conversation. So there's a lot for us to unpack and unravel when we touch and talk about slavery as a whole, because there's a lot of misconceptions, um, misinformation that's out there. Um, that we have to kind of plow and plow our way through to try to get some type of solid direction, you know, for, you know, we may not have a complete understanding, but at least get on a road where the understanding will become a little more um, clear or, you know, have some clarity to it. And how I've always uh, approached it, because um, I really wanted to be thoughtful when I um, would teach the slave narratives and African-American literature and what have you. And I always started with teaching it from an economic social structure. And I would always begin the unit by teaching my students feudalism. And I wanted them to understand how a lot of how that system was structured was it was really perpetuated through the system of enslavement in the Americas and just, you know, you needed that bottom class and you had the enforcers, you had the bourgeois, you had the ruling king at one point, you know? So it was just kind of like looking at how feudalism was structured. It, I mean, just looking at what was done here in this country systematically um, definitely resonates. And something that <coughs> Z said, you know, students, you know, kind of being drawn to that power, well, look at our system here capitalism is power money money is power and so when you look at how money fueled that system and all of the trade that came out of it yeah like if i was a kid i would probably be drawn to that because that's all i see that's mm -hmm. all i see in the media that's what i see on television we have a president that really don't give a fuck you know what i'm saying like he getting his money in his bread. <laughs> 
He making sure his folks are good. Everybody getting money off the taxpayers. Like they, they getting contracts and stuff. It's illegal. They go to court. They're like, oh, well, let's pardon you. Yeah. So money and power go hand in hand. And it looks really appetizing to people that have been systematically oppressed. Because so obviously that's your way to freedom. Where are you going to go? We didn't get out right. of here. We still here. We don't know who who our tribes are. So we can't just like, man, I'm just get this one way ticket to Madagascar. I'm out. You know, it's just like <laughs> going. You know, so power gives them comfort. Money gives them comfort. I've worked in some of the poorest neighborhoods here in Memphis. And there are many that believe, like, yeah, I'm good. As soon as I graduate, I'm gonna get this job, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, make me twenty thousand dollars. I'm good. Like, bruh. Right living in generational poverty if you think that $20,000 is enough and why aren't you willing to fight for higher wages and so if they're not directly impacted by those social structures they won't get it then but hopefully they will get it later I agree with you I um I used to work at Westside and Frazier and I would have these like real talk sessions with my students and we were reading 40 million dollar slave and some of them, you know, I asked them, you know, if you know, we were reading 40 million, the $40 million slave, and we were also discussing concussion, the film about the football uh, players and things with the um, brain damage. And some of them were like, you know, if it harms me, I will take that if it'll get my folks up out of here. And mm -hmm. it, you really start to see that money like people equate money and power I think we all do you know the more money you have the more opportunities you have because children although they are young they're not stupid by a long shot they understand poverty they understand that their schools are much different than the schools that are in other communities they understand food stamps they understand all those things so when we try to act as those children are immune to those feelings of inadequacy and low self-esteem and poverty I think we do them a disservice. So I definitely agree with you that they, you have, we're, we have generations of people and we're perpetuating generations of students who feel like if I don't, I would do anything to get out of poverty. So if that means I got to be a slave catcher, so be it. If that means I got to, because I have to worry about my family and myself. So I think communal um, teaching is needed. What does, what does community take? Um, in your education and also in liberation. If you are concerned solely about yourself, then what does that mean about your entire community? So I think we must also keep pushing the idea of community and healthy communities. Not just, you know, we all get together and it's toxic, but how can we create healthy communities where young people feel like, okay, you know, I am my brother's keeper. It's not just about me and my block or me and my household. It's about all of us. And if we want to be revolutionary free, then we must do this collectively. So I agree with you, Melanie, on that aspect. Now, I think the only offshoot that I will take is that I'm not convinced anymore that it's going to be a collective effort. Honestly, yeah, I, I, I can't hear you. What did you say? I'm sorry, I'm driving. <laughs> I would say, yeah, it'll never be like a utopia, and there'll always be differences because of all the isms, right? Classism, sexism, right. racism, all these things. But I do think we must build some type of community where kids can look up to and like, okay, this is my tribe. Even if it's not a perfect one, 
if it is safe. And that's why I keep using the word safe and not toxic, because there are a lot of toxic <laughs> communities and toxic yeah, individuals I, trying to act like they're in community. Yeah, I, 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 I think I'm, I'm sorry, Mike. Go ahead. I agree. Um, it's, it's funny that when you said that, when you even talk about the whole slave um, from that aspect of how we're going to touch bases on it, there's a couple of things I see that are problematic uh, with that. Um, yes, it can be, it won't be a large group because we already know that um, one thing I'll with my, my kids um, at the school is like, you know, if we were stranded in a forest and um, the fresh water, it was fresh water for us to drink, my hands would be cupped like this, y'all hands would be like this. You won't be able to hold anything. Um, mm -hmm. Because you, you, if we had any type of plan or, or structure, everybody can be invited to that, to that meeting, um, to that organization of it. Because we already know that some folks feel like they feel safe. Um, they feel safe in, in what I like to call in the master's hands. Uh, and my thing is with that, you, you're doing your people a disservice um, when you, you turn coat like that. So I do agree with the fact we can't have it open, uh, but it do take that faithful few mm -hmm. to really push uh, and make, make those changes in the machine that need to be, um, that machine that needs to be upgraded. Because we've been running, we've been running that same machine for so long and um, and now it's kind of like, you know, this apathetic thought process, this, oh, uh, you know, this defeat before even trying mentality that we have. Um, it goes into the the psychological um, scars of slavery. Um, I remember when I was I was just be spewing this out in my chats with my guys on at the University of Memphis campus years ago, and we would be talking. And I would say, you know, we can't even move forward until we deal with healing from our past. And, um, and I kept saying that for years and years throughout the 90s and here within, I say, the, like, the last four, four or five years, there was some two ladies that did this study and found that's embedded in our DNA, um, basically like a... Um, same thing that soldiers get. Um, the, the, yes, and, and it's my doctor Joy DeGruy. Yes, and and I was like, man, mm -hmm. I'm saying it for years just off of speculation, uh, but then for them to really come through and see that it actually exists, and I think that's one of the things that one of the hurdles, major hurdles that we all have to try to figure out of getting through is understanding that we're still hurting. From the damage that was done uh, 200 some years ago and and it's not even the physical damage of these pictures that we see that pe that people decide to post up about lynchings that occurred in the early 1900s um, but that psychological is is still you know very painful for many of us to even get through so main I, I look at it as one of the main reasons why it's so quick for us to anger you but know, my, it's the thing though there are people there are black people that don't believe that whatever is going on with them is even rooted in anything that has anything to do with slavery so how do you get them to understand that there's some psychological 
whatever they're dealing with is connected. They don't even. They there's, don't. No, there's, no, there's no point in doing so because freedom is an individual endeavor. Mm -hmm. And it is our job to live as freely as possible. And if we serve as an example for somebody else who wants to be free, they will find you. Okay. They will seek the out point. the information. Mm -hmm. It's just like, uh, what was the sister that said? I probably would free more black people if they knew that they weren't a slave. She freed herself and she went back and got the people who wanted to be free. And sometimes they left their own family members. Sometimes their family members told on them. And I think we have to approach it in the same way. Is It's funny because yesterday, Angela Davis and Nikki Giovanni were in this historic conversation. Yes. And just listening to them, one of the things that I've always loved about those two women was how fearless they live. And I think it is our job as revolutionary Black women and men to live as freely as possible so that way our lives can be of service to others who are watching us. It's really not our job to free others. That's what I've come to believe. And I, I, I evolved a bit. I've gone through some things. I've seen mm -hmm. things. And I'm here. And I want to live as fearlessly as possible. And it's funny, I had a student that just tagged me on the post yesterday and said that I was an OG natural sister. I was the first person to ever teach her to love her natural hair. I've been natural for over half my life. And I taught this girl years ago years ago and she struggled with her identity and how she looked and accepting herself and all that and now she's just gotten to a place almost 10 years later where she's accepting of her body her image and how she looks but i knew that back in 1999 98 when i cut all of my hair off that i just i couldn't do it anymore like relaxers were breaking out my hair and all that kind of stuff so to kind of liberate myself from that was my way of freeing myself from, you know, beauty standards that were not of my own. Mm. And so I think for revolutionary educators, revolutionary Black people, we just have to live freely as possible. Okay. And hopefully in that process, our lives can be of service to somebody else. So back yes, to... I agree. Okay, sorry. So here's the thing, because I'm like the mediator and the one with all the questions. You've given an example of how we can be Black and live free. I'm interested to see what Michael would have to say about that and what Z would have to say about that. What does being Black and living free look like for you? Anybody can jump in. Um, being Black and I think it's when you become that, you, you, you get into that space of awareness. You know, when things you know are not right. When you, once you get into that, that awareness factor, if like some people saying that awakening, but not, you know, even though everybody want to run around and talk about how woke they are. Um, but, but just, just that awareness of, of knowing who you are and, and never um, taking anything for short. One of the things I remember as a child, and this this has stuck with me for for ever since the day it was told to me. Uh, I was walking walking with my father, and I kept holding my head down, and uh, 
and he looked at me he said son why are you holding your head down and i and we were walking in a direction we were walking eastward so the sun was like beaming right into my face i said well the sun is all in my face and these words that he's he's he stated to me he said son no matter what is standing in your way you hold your head up high you you face it on with you know and continue to keep looking ahead because no man will respect a man that holds his head down and um and that to me has been one of the driving forces of understanding that i know where my place is you know i know that i'm not what they say or what they're trying to claim and try to put out there saying that we are that i know i'm better than that and um and i can move and navigate within those means and hopefully um I'm a firm believer if if I move ahead, I'm gonna reach back and bring at least one with me. And so that that is one of the things that have have allowed me to um to help as many people as I can. I'm I have a lot of my former athletes and former students coming back, reaching back to me. It's like, hey coach, it is what you said it was, you know, that you know. It was not going to be easy, but I was able to make it through and, and I should have listened to you more in class. And I'm like, well, you know, it's good that you figured it out uh, at the time that you did. But for the most part, it's just just knowing that um, that I'm more than with anybody statistically so-called statistics, because I really don't put a lot of a lot of lot into statistics because we always know those numbers can always be manipulated. Yeah, but there is some truth to them. There is some truth, but for the most <laughs> part, for the most part, um, for the most part, a lot of those numbers can be fudged just to make white supremacy still look like they they are in, on top and in control. There's a lot of things that I disagree with on on those aspects. Well, uh, that might be another chat up. Yeah, that's another chat up there. I feel a strong <laughs> urge to disagree with you. Because <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. how the data is disaggregated and reported on can be fudged. But a lot of times, depending on the source of the numbers. Well, I agree with that. That's why Come I, on that, Mike. Come on. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But at the same time, I still look at when the, when the source, when, when you are spewing these things out, and everything that it, it can be it can be jaded because as soon as you may have a legitimate source mm -hmm. they gotta go murking everything up with a source that's not legitimate and who's to say that what 100 one out of 100 people did you study you know that's that's why I'm, I, I, yeah, I look at yeah, I think the only I think the only stat I disregard are those political polls because ain't nobody ever asked me to do a political poll. <laughs> and I am a fan of CBS News, but they have never asked me to take a political poll. Because <laughs> I think Elizabeth Warren would still be in the running if they would have asked me. <laughs> so see, okay. now your turn. What does being black and living free look like? I like your example because I'm taking many notes and I'm I'm having <laughs> the time of my life over here. So I'm a trying to bring as much of, of what we've discussed. I'm trying to try to summarize it at the end. It's a lot and I'm probably gonna have to go back and watch the video and be like, oh I missed that part. But go ahead, Z. <laughs> what does being black and living free look like for you? 
I think being black and living free for me is all about choices and options. Um, my undergrad degree is in African American studies. So and I graduated with nine years ago. That wasn't a very sexy major to have. Like I would literally have people in my own family saying, you just playing in school. You're mm -hmm. not really, you know what I mean? What you gonna do with it? So where did you go to school at? University of Memphis. Okay, so this so is family Dr. here. Bun, Dr. AC, all those folks. Um, so I would literally have people saying, you playing, you know, that's not a real major you need to go to English you need to go to all these different things and those same people I mean and I will be ready to fight every time because I'm like you just don't understand we don't know what we think we know there's a whole diaspora of, of African people and we just are so focused on being you know U.S. centric that we are negating to talk really about these experience of people of African descent in context mm -hmm. so um now those same people in 2020 are saying man you know, I want to look into that, or I've read this book, and what do you think about this, this, and that, but it's like, if I had not felt free enough to make that choice initially, where would I be now? So, I think living free as a Black woman is having autonomy over my life and my decisions, and making sure those decisions will have a positive effect, whether, like you said, plant the seed now and watching this grow later, that's important to me, particularly as an educator. Um, being black and free is also about lifting as I climb. That's one of my favorite quotes ever. So the more I free myself, the more I can have an open mind for those who are where I feel like they should be or where I quote unquote feel like I'm so woke or whatever. I can have a whole space for them and be empathetic because they're in their own journey. So I'm not going to shove it in their throat. I'm going to live my life in such a way, and I love how Melanie said, live my life in such a way that others are inspired. Mm -hmm. So I think that's important when you talk about being free, I have to allow others to be their free selves as well. Knowing that all I live my life, the books that I read, the information that I share, the places I go, the way I dress is in a subtle manner revolutionary and it's changing how people feel about themselves. Yeah. Um, so when I speak shop, when I went to work the next day and people were saying all these things and I was working at the National Civil Rights Museum but that's another classic conversation but anyway so <laughs> people say things there but years later they were on their <laughs> own natural as well so I can't always be offended when people don't understand how my freedom is mine but I have to always have the responsibility to drop little nuggets and even if it doesn't spread on them, perhaps what they say about me around other people will inspire someone else. So I think freedom is yours, yourself. And I can't define anybody else's freedom. I things for other people, but they may not be their value system. And I think as educators, that's one of the biggest um, barriers a lot of educators have when talking about building relationships with their students. You want to place your value system onto them. They may not value the same things that you do. That does not say that they don't have their own value system. So I think a lot of times educators get offended when students don't dress a certain way or they don't speak a certain way or they don't quote unquote care about things that we do. But we have to remember, we had to go through a pattern to grow up into adults. We had to prioritize things. I think that if we are consistent, in our um, uh, freedom, in our showing of being our sales, that does inspire other people. So, I can, for me, is about 
<clears throat> so for me, go ahead, I'm finished. So for me, being black and living free, it looks like um, presenting this art or this culture that intentionally speaks a very specific truth. So it's about taking ownership of a narrative for me. Um, claiming, like I said, when I first started off this, the, the whole conversation and I started talking about how did I come to start learning, for slavery, learning about slavery for myself, it started off by just watching the lifestyles of, my, of the elderly women in my family and how everything that they were doing had a root or a connection back into what their foremothers were doing when they were enslaved persons. And so I think that that to me is the connection that I have. I think it comes through developing an art or actually encouraging an art or supporting an art and pieces in other cultural productions that intentionally speak a very specific truth, um, a truth that can be painful, but a truth that can also be liberating. Um, it kind of appears at first that we're celebrating blackness and we are, but then as people become more engaged with that art and with those particular cultural productions, there exists an opportunity now to give them the backstory for how this even came together. And it's rooted in uh, a certain historical truth that still impacts us today. So it's about controlling that narrative. When I walk out here and I intentionally make, I listen to a certain kind of music or I read a certain kind of book. Um, and in some sense, creating platforms like this so that people like us can get together and have these conversations. This in and of itself is what being free looks, being black and being free looks like to me. Just being able to take the autonomy, to have this autonomy to um, pick up this narrative or pick up this story and pick up these things that I have learned that I know are lies and actually, or lies or not, or, or not complete truths or what have you, and then speak against them. So it's about telling a certain and a very specific truth and using art and, and, cultural, and culture for doing that. So anybody else got anything they want to add? Because we're about to get ready to wrap up. I'm going to see if I can summarize this because this has been great and it's a lot. I think also just, as a black person, we can't be afraid of losing it all. I think sometimes people are afraid to get into the fight because they will lose all of their uh, trappings. A lot of us have worked really hard to get where we are in our career, with our families to make sure that they're taken care of. And you know, there's always this talk amongst black folks about creating generational wealth and passing it on and you know, grinding and, you know, creating something of their own. But I often look to people like Ida B. Wells and Annie Lou Hamer. It's something about those two women. Like, man, I probably be called their names on this water over here because <laughs> really spiritually connected to their stories and just the kind of women they were. I mean, Ida B. Wells had to get up out of here <laughs> in the middle of the night. And, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer you know, died in a very tragic sense, like literally kind of giving up her life after going through so much and just kind of knowing that at any point they lose it all and they would have to start over and it would be really hard. And, you know, just how do you take care of yourself and all of that? And I think sometimes being willing to lose it all and still be happy in that and knowing that you're kind of saving yourself um, is also an act of liberation of the self. So I agree. 
I think that yeah, it's I just, one thing that I um got from the um go ahead and finish. I thought you were oh, no, go, go ahead. Go ahead. One thing that I got from the chat with uh Nikki Giovanni and Angela Davis was that we owe so much to poor black women. Yeah. And like yeah. the half is not even been told. Like it is revolutionary to say, you know what? I'm willing to give up this very meager salary if that means that we can integrate these buses. Now, whether I agree with that is totally different, but these women were literally put their lives on the line. They made so many sacrifices, but I think that they've never been revered or honored for it. But then I'm also conflicted because it literally almost killed some of these women. Yeah. It actually did. It literally killed them. A lot of them died. Yeah, a lot of them died from like high blood pressure complications from diabetes, right. shutdowns, heart disease, all of it, suicide, cancer. Yeah, in yeah. both men and women, it it killed a lot of them in some form or fashion. So yeah, it, it was. So on I think we have to be. We have to be um, knowledgeable of that, and also honor that as well when we talk about. Um, um, this movement and where we are now, because if we do not take care of ourselves, we are going to be in that same line, you know? So the job of an educator is already tough, but when you pile on that Black women were um, also trying to, black, uh, black teachers are also trying to educate, that's a lot of pressure to put on a person um, because we're not just educating curriculum, we're educating for not only surviving, but also trying to have these kids thrive and flourish. And that's right. a lot when we take that on and pile that on ourselves. And, so and, and it's okay. Yeah. And I think it's okay to kind of excuse yourself from that fight. I think mm -hmm. I wonder if knowing what we know now about self-care and taking care of ourselves and our health, how much yeah. longer would they have stayed in the fight? Because the fight literally killed them. And I think that's why I believe so strongly that, you know, freedom is an individual endeavor. And I think sometimes having to remove yourself from the fight and rethinking how you're going to get back into it, that can still preserve yourself, that can still sustain your soul, I think is very much important. Um, just very briefly, like I worked at BTW for five years and I felt like it was an endless um, term that was very traumatic for me. Um, I think to see the overpowering effect that poverty had on at least three generations of Black folks in that neighborhood and how we had to serve entire families um, and just knowing what I know and knowing what I saw, it was a very traumatic experience for me. And I think to kind of be able to get out of it, you know, I really had to process it. I really had to get myself back into therapy to kind of really deal. And I was in therapy throughout it all because um, we haven't even gotten to the, the psychological impact that depression has on children and how I... it perpetuates itself. And it is maddening. And, um, but I had to free myself from that. And I don't think that takes away any of the love that I have for any of those students and families in South Memphis that I serve. But I wonder what would have been the approach for some of those strong Black women. I'm only referring to Black women, not even getting into Black men, but some of those strong Black women that were in that fight and how they could have preserved themselves. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, you know, um, one of the things that the big takeaway from all of this, this, this was good. Um, I just think in many ways that we, we as a people, we, we do have to take time to do that soul search. Um, think about the impact of a lot of things. Uh, just like you said, Melanie, about having to rethink some things and your approach. I've spent um, a lot of times having to redo that uh, myself where, uh, you know, maybe, you know, as an educator, maybe that way is not just the right way. Um, you know, you have to understand that, you know, everybody's not going to agree with you, even including your students. They're not going to agree with you. But then when they finally see something that you have done and you have that seed that you have planted in them and it comes back, you know, like, you know, it boomerangs back to them and then they come back and say, hey, I remember what you said. And yeah, you know, you were right. And I started seeking knowledge myself. Um, a few of my former students that I see on Facebook is, is it makes me proud to see that they're beginning to pick up the torch of, you know, being, you know, showing their activism and voicing out the, a lot of things that are going on in the world and they're becoming more aware of it. Um, I just think we have to stay in there, hang with, keep doing what we do, um, maintain our freedom and, and help others. You know, we can't help them to really find theirs, but we at least can put them on the road towards it. Wow. So here's what I've gathered. Z, did you have something? Um. So yeah, I think about my own uh, childhood in South Memphis, <laughs> being from the foothomes, and I think about how the black teachers in my schools, there was just not a teacher for, um, I'm just going to teach you this curriculum, they really offer such wraparound support that it's crazy right. that I, I feel, I would feel like I did not a, I didn't understand how revolutionary their acts were because you just feel like, well, that's an adult. That's what teachers are supposed to do. Now that I am an educator, it's like, look at how much time they sacrificed for yes. me. Look how much money they sacrificed for me because my fourth grade the year. The emotional labor. Right. So yeah. I was a homeless student my fourth grade year. And, you know, I started acting out, got suspended, got all these things. And my, those were my black teachers who pulled me to the side and, you know, what's going on? And I felt comfortable being honest with them. So they bought shoes. They bought, I mean, they did all these things. And especially that emotional labor part. And I just feel like when I started teaching, I wanted to be just like them. But I had to, after I had a little break, <laughs> you know, I had to realize I am not a savior. So saviorism is a thing in teaching, right? I'm going to take all these poor black kids and I'm going to do all this stuff. But in my opinion, that's start you look at you start off looking at them before even building a relationship you look at them as having a deficit already and that's not how you approach children or anybody but that wraparound support is so needed in schools particularly in high poverty areas but that also take such a toll on the teachers there like we don't know what our colleagues are going through we're in the middle of COVID-19 and they're still telling us to teach so we have teachers who are impacted by and they reward this quote unquote appearance like your, your staff 
that's what you're doing. Um, and we're expected to always be so sacrificing and appeasing that the human humanism is taken out of teaching. So I feel like um, that wraparound support is not only for the community, but for the community of teachers as well. Got it. So let me see if I can try to summarize all this power that has just gone forth with this conversation. Um, we started off finding out how did we start learning about slavery on our own without it being something required in school for the most part. Um, and Mike started off actually saying that in school, uh, and so did Z, both of them kind of sound like that, they, that it was something in school that helped them start learning about slavery more through their experiences in school. And uh, we learned through family. So in uh, Melanie's case, she learned through her parents who were basically like the family historians and knew something of their background in me because of how I watched my elders live. So, and lots of books. And lots of books, yes, and lots of books. So we all had a different entry point. Um, then we went on to discuss as educators, because I don't think it was an accident that the people who joined this call are literally people who are all in education. How can we teach um, slavery as black educators to black children? That is still something that honestly can still be expanded and fleshed out more. But um, I do know that to summarize it, we all agree that it's very expansive. Uh, it's something that we have to do within a context. We have to help students understand the nuances. Um, and eventually, if we can, figuring out a way to teach it ex expansively within the community and outside of the classrooms because there's not enough room. There's too many restrictions in the classroom to actually do what we need to do and to really flesh it out like we should. Z's approach, when she's teaching, she starts with a human rights perspective. Melanie starts with an economic. Mike wants to do the hard truth and make people swallow the bitter pill. And I institute it when I can. So that is kind of our own individual approach to how, to, how we as Black uh, educators uh, introduce slavery to our students that we're serving. Then we really went into how there's going to be a faithful few of us that's going to be doing this work of really trying to um, manage how to keep slavery in the forefront of our minds as a people and helping those around us understand how that how the legacy of slavery still impacts us on a daily. This brought up uh, a question about what does being black and living in free living free looks like. For Melanie, it was about doing something that liberates her from a systematic standard. For Mike, it was uh, through the example of his father and defying uh, stats and stereotypes and saying that maybe you say that this is who I am, but this is not who I am. I'm the one that decides that. Z uh, talks about choices and options. And for me, it was about controlling a narrative and speaking a very specific truth through art and culture. Um, did I miss anything before I continue? <laughs> I'll email you later. Because <laughs> I, mean, I can't catch everything, you know. Well, I, I, I don't know if the, uh, how well, I, because I don't think I really responded about how to live freely, but I think I kind of. You did. You did. You gave an example. I think just the way you summarize, I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't think I said that, but okay. that was me. That was me. and what I heard and how I written it down. But you can get back with me later. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfectly fine. Because you gave the example of 
the hair, but it was more to that. But like I said, I probably missed it. I got to go back and watch some stuff. I'm certain I missed a lot. Yeah. It's just that this whole legacy of it is ever evolving. Can we agree on that? It's ever evolving. Um, it's something that is not constant or monolithic. And while it has very specific historical origins, it just expands in like multitudinous ways. And so as we free ourselves, we work to help those who want to figure it out, how to manage it collectively and individually. So it just all depends on how you show up on this, you know, this timeline of humanity and exist in this, this blackness. Um, it's a lot <laughs> to summarize. It's a lot. Definitely. Definitely enjoyed every single bit of what has transpired here today. I have learned so much. It continues to give me something more to think about. And that's all I have. Do y'all have anything y'all want to say before we get ready to close out? Well, thank you for hosting. You're welcome. This was yep, thank you. This was fun. If anybody got any questions or anything else they want to say, email me, hit me up on, you know, what is it? And the, the, yeah, hit me up in the DMs, as they say. And um, this it. was amazing. Thank you. Oh, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it because I know I did. And I have like a lot of stuff to really just go back and think through some more based on all the points that it helps to get a lot of stuff out of your head, but it also helps to, to share what you have in your head to hear what other people think and feel about it. So I'm just really, really appreciative right. of the exchange. I'm really happy that you all participated. And this is the way we're going to close out. We did a libation at the beginning. So the only thing we're going to do now is to send uh, blessings to each other individually. So I'm gonna start first with you, Mike, and you bless us with your greeting. You bless us with your well wishes as we close out and so on. Go ahead, Mike. All right. Um, actually, this has been, been great. Um, looking forward to maybe another one down the road. Um, my, I guess to spew, spew this out, maybe the chat up, and I'm probably speaking in existence. Maybe this is your talk show platform. Um, but ladies, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I wish and most definitely uh, much success, blessings to each and every last one of you and your endeavors. And uh, hopefully, hopefully we can do this again. Melanie? Thank y'all for being present, be blessed. <laughs> Short and sweet. Z? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did we lose her? Z? I think she, she's on mute right now. Uh, she come back. Jenny, where are you? <laughs> Where'd she go? Yeah, she's on mute. She's probably got it because she was in her car the whole time. She probably got to, you know, she's out doing her thing. There she go. She's back. There we go. Hey, Z. Oh. Sorry, I was talking. Being a robot. What would you? What were you saying? I'm sorry. That's okay. I was just asking you to give your blessings as we get ready to close out for the group. Um, well, I don't even know how to do this, but <laughs> I'll just send blessings to all of you for your work and how you show up in these spaces. Um, thank you so much for this conversation because it's much needed, even if we are um the only ones who really care enough about culture, culturally relevant education to address it. So I wish you all well, and thank you for being thought partners in this process. 
You did that beautifully for someone who did, who didn't know how to do it. Thank you. <laughs> All right, we're ending now. Bye, y'all. All right, bye. bye.